0: Hey Katie. Hey, Ben. So we're talking about pneumonia from chest x-rays, a follow-up of our previous episode, so I don't have any puns because it's kind of a serious thing, <laughs> pneumonia.
1: I don't have any puns either.
0: Oh Well, we should just start pun-free, I guess. This is odd. You're listening to Linear Digressions. I feel like it, like, isn't Making puns my main job on the show. I feel, I feel really <laughs> weird right now.
1: Yeah, I might have to start interviewing for new co-hosts. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think since this is a little bit of a callback episode to one we did a few weeks ago, um, it's worth doing a quick recap of that. So that was an episode about a machine learning algorithm that was using x-rays of people's chests to try to detect pneumonia. And a bunch of other different lung diseases. Uh, So it's maybe worth going through that episode, just a 90-second recap or something. Do you remember that one, Ben?
0: I do. I I think I do. Uh, You can tell me what I missed. But as I recall, uh, my first thought was, oh, this makes a lot of sense because you have a lot of imaging input. You can run that through uh, some sort of uh, an ML algorithm and uh, try and do some sort of prediction. Uh, the thing that didn't cross my mind at first glance and the thing that we kind of covered in the episode is that predicting whether someone has uh, a disease from that kind of imaging data, it's not just the imaging data that's the input. You also have all of this free-form text input around, like, what was the previous visit like or what was what did the previous imaging show for a particular patient? Some patients may not have had a previous visit. Some patients may have a long history, And so the doctor, when uh, deciding whether or not this person has this particular condition, is not just looking at the imaging, they're looking at all of the, uh, I guess, all of the context around the person's previous visits, if there are any. And so um, building a model that can take all of that in as input as well, uh, it just complicates everything and makes things a little bit difficult. And so you can't necessarily build a really accurate predictive model by just looking at the imaging input.
1: Yeah, that was a really good summary. And so this is a follow-up blog post by uh, the same person who wrote the original one. So Luke Oakden Rader, who uh, got in touch with us after the last episode. So thanks, dude. That was really cool. (laughs) Uh, And suggested actually that we read this blog post because it's kind of some follow-up study. So his background, as I understand it, is he's a radiologist. So he's an expert at looking at X-rays, and then he also seems to have some machine learning experience because he seems quite comfortable around uh, the algorithms and the different metrics that you might use to uh, evaluate them. So he's at just kind of this nice sweet spot uh, of being able to bring some substantive knowledge that someone like me lacks to to the to the problem. Uh, but he also has machine learning chops more than let's say your average physician.
0: Yeah, that seems kind of like how many radiologists also have ML
1: chops. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And so he uh, was unpacking a result that came out of a group that was based at Stanford, I believe. And uh, the name of the algorithm that this, this team built was called ChexNet, which is I think kind of like chest x ray. Oh, I was thinking after the serial? Yeah, the (laughs) the serial. That's really strange. Um, And then it was based on, it was trained on this algorithm, or uh, on a data set called chest x ray 14. A lot of the blog posts, the last blog post that we talked about, sort of as you summarized, was about the details of how that data set was. Um, collected and annotated and some of the things that could have been popping up in that data set that made it less than ideal, let's say, for machine learning. And it's worth going back to some of the original claims of the first paper, because we'll want to talk about them in a, middle, in a minute. But the, the whole reason that this is an interesting thing to begin with is because this is, as far as I'm aware, the first case in which there's a medical outcome Namely, finding these cases of, let's say, pneumonia in this case, where an algorithm has nominally better than human capabilities. And so the idea is that if you're trying to do something like find pneumonia, there's human doctors who have some capabilities at at finding it. There's also this algorithm that they've built and that the algorithm is actually better. And that's a big claim to make. And I was right. choosing my words very carefully there when I was explaining that, because one of the places that it's important to understand exactly what the measure is of the quality of this algorithm is it's meant to detect pneumonia. It is not meant to diagnose pneumonia.
0: To, to so wait, I thought those were kind of the same thing.
1: Not quite. So pneumonia is an interesting type of disease. Well, I don't know how interesting it is, but (laughs) one thing that's worth understanding is pneumonia is what's called a clinical diagnosis. And so what that means is that there isn't a single test that you can be subject to that says you have pneumonia. It's a diagnosis that you make on a number of different axes at the same time, if that makes sense, as Mm. opposed to, I don't know, let's say cancer, where there's a very concrete types of tests that will say that you have cancer. Pneumonia is maybe a little bit more of a judgment call, let's say. And so being able to diagnose pneumonia on the basis of x-rays alone is kind of not a very well-formed question because it's not the way that doctors diagnose pneumonia. They don't diagnose it in just looking at your x-ray, they use all of that context that you were talking about in the diagnosis. And so detecting Mm. pneumonia is, in this case, looking at a x-ray and being able to say it looks like maybe this is a person who, once we had all the fullness of that other information, we would make a diagnosis. But on the basis of the x-ray itself, doctors generally wouldn't be making diagnoses of pneumonia, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does make sense.
1: And so I think that's important to nail down because it's a it's a little bit of a fine point. Like, we had to yeah. take a minute or two there just to unpack it. But it does make a big difference for the type of medical claim that you're making. And it was a place where sometimes the language that was used around this this result got a little bit, let's say, imprecise. And there's... A pretty good chance that in our last episode, I even said phrases like that, because I didn't totally understand the difference. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wanted to acknowledge that up front, that it's a very particular type of thing that they're trying to do is to detect pneumonia, not to diagnose pneumonia. But anyway, that's a little bit of preamble. Yeah, right. I, I do remember after
0: uh, after that episode, I started paying a little more attention. And I actually came across a couple of articles that seemed to be concerned that radiologists would all be out of work because of this uh, this algorithm.
1: Yeah, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. Maybe yeah, someday,
0: but for for many of the reasons that we've already kind of gone over, which is that this is a very th- that this is uh, detecting, not diagnosing, and also this algorithm only takes in a certain type of input, etc. It's 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 a very um, it's a very focused, it's a it's a solution to a very focused problem set, if that makes sense. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, onto to the blog post in a little bit more detail. So, the reason that this blog post uh, was created was because Luke Oakdenrader had been in correspondence with the folks who wrote the original paper. And he, he makes a very strong point up front that it sounds like they've been really lovely to correspond with, and, and they've been a really good... Uh, Partners to him in trying to understand all of this. So there's some criticisms that he, I think, has of the paper. A lot of them actually ended up getting addressed in later versions that they released. But I just want to add that as a preamble to this that, you know, this is, it's going to sound a little bit critical because we're going to be picking apart some of the things that are a little bit complicated or that maybe weren't communicated well the first time around. But it's not necessarily meant with any ill will towards the folks who did it. I think it's a little bit more. Illustrating how hard it can be to line up all the details on these kinds of things and how many subtle choices that you make when you're putting together a machine learning analysis like this or a data analysis like this that uh, impact the outcome that you might get. And so as an example, uh, just to dig into this, so one of the first examples that he tackles is the data set itself. So there's about 98,000 images that they train on. There's about 6,000 images that they used for tuning, and then there were about 420 that they used for validation. And because of the rates at which there are different kinds of diseases in this data set, pneumonia is something like 1% to 2% in the data set itself, prevalence. So if you have 1% to 2% of 420 cases, then in your validation set, if it were just selected sort of randomly, you would only have five to 10 cases of pneumonia that you would expect to see, which is not a whole lot. And so if you're making very strong statements about, you know, how good your algorithm is, it's, you're kind of making those statements on the basis of maybe just a few cases that it's gotten right or wrong. And so that was the first question that, that uh, they had was, is it possible that some of the kind of superhuman claims that we're having here is because of just small numbers mm. or, you know, how, how statistically solid do we feel about this, you know, quote unquote, superhuman claim. Um, and they actually were pretty smart about this. They enriched the validation set in these more interesting cases like pneumonia. So in the validation set, uh, they had a higher prevalence of pneumonia. They had about 50 cases instead of five to 10, which is not a bad thing necessarily. Um, In fact, it makes for probably more reliable uh, measurements of the quality of the model. But that's the kind of thing that uh, it's easy to overlook when you're writing up the paper and had to be clarified a little bit later on. Because that was the first question was just like, oh, are we even sure that this is a real result? Because maybe it was just on the basis of a few cases. And it turns out it's a little more solid than that. But of course, you know, with the fullness of hindsight, it maybe would have been nice to not even sort of have that question in the first place.
0: So, them not having that question in the first place, would that mean enriching the validation set further?
1: Mm. Well, so I'm not sure if I totally understand your question. I mean, one way you could not have the question in the first place is if the data set that you were using for some reason had something like 5 to 10% enrichment in pneumonia mm-hmm. instead of 1 to
0: 2%. I see.
1: And then, and then you probably would have felt a little bit more solid to begin with, but that wasn't the case in this particular data set. They had to do a little bit of enrichment, which is fine. You just want to mention it. Uh, and then a second thing, speaking of it's fine, but you want to mention it. So there's a very tricky kind of signal leakage that you could also get here. They didn't have this problem, but that had to be sort of clarified after the fact so signal leakage is when you have examples in your test set or in your validation set where there's some kind of information that's encoded in those examples themselves that allows the algorithm to cheat and figure out that they're, what, the, what the label might be. That's why it's called signal leakage, is you're supposed to keep your signal confined to your training set, and then your, your testing set or your validation set are supposed to be truly blind. But if you can somehow figure out the signal from... Ways that are sort of unfair, then you can accidentally overestimate the the quality of your algorithm and so the form of signal leakage that you could get here is there's more images than there are patients. If I recall correctly, there's something like thirty thousand patients and around a hundred thousand images so oh, that means interesting that on, yeah, so that means that on average you have something like three images per patient. That doesn't mean that that's the same number for. Everyone, there's probably cases in which many cases where you ha- only have one, some cases where you might have a whole bunch. But you could imagine a case or a situation you could get into where, let's say, you're not very careful about which image goes into training, testing, or validation. And so you train on images one and two from a given patient, and then you test on image three from that same patient. That's a way that you can get signal leakage, because you basically have a version of the same picture in the training set and in the testing set, because they're coming from the same person. Mm, So you have to be really careful about that, yeah, and have your data set partitioned by the person and not by the image, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot... That's fascinating. Yeah, because I guess you'll take multiple pictures and they may be fairly separated uh, by time, but still you have a lot similarity. Your, your third picture and your second picture and your first picture have so much more similarity than you do to any other patient because those patients not only have the thing that uh, that you're looking for, the, the signs of pneumonia, but also the exact placement and shape of your ribs and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course that you have the answer because uh, you have <laughs> yeah. labeled examples for you know the first two. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So, like we said, there's a fairly simple fix for that, which is do it on the per patient basis and not on the per image basis. But it's the kind of thing that if you weren't thinking about that at the outset, uh, that would be an easy mistake to make and could totally screw up your results. So, another thing that has been uh, clarified since the first uh, the first paper, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Right. So they did it right in
1: this case. Yes. Yes. But again, just needed to be clarified.
0: Wow. Yeah. You know, in, in in my day-to-day software uh, job, the the problems that are hardest are not things like syntax error or design problems. They're like logic problems. Uh, like, did you design your system in a way that is logically sound? And it seems like so many of the, the hardest issues in machine learning are the same thing, where there's just a thing that you didn't think about, fundamentally didn't think about. So you can't look at your model and find the issue because you just fundamentally didn't take it into consideration when you were designing the model.
1: So speaking of funny little logical errors that can creep in, that's actually a a nice segue to the next one, which is... Not planned, not planned. (laughs) Talking about how the labeling was actually done and the way that they compared the algorithm to human performance. So I said at the beginning that one of the claims of this paper is that the algorithm does better than humans do at detecting pneumonia. And so now we're going to unpack what it means for an algorithm to do better than humans. Uh, and the way that they defined that here is they got a team of four radiologists to go through all of the pictures. And first thing is those folks actually relabeled the pictures, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was one of the issues that they had with the original data set was whether the labels were actually lining up with the images in a way that was consistent and made sense. So. Hopefully the relabeling helps with some of that, but uh, it introduces a few issues. Number one is that the relabeling doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily making things super clean in the sense that sometimes the relabeled images, will the new labels will disagree with the old images. There's four radiologists, they can disagree with each other about what the labels are. So it's inherently kind of a messy process to go through and label all of these images. And so then the definition of the algorithm doing better than the humans is that the human machine agreement is higher than the average human human agreement. So that's kind of the metric is are the humans agreeing with each other? If so, then point for the humans. If the machine is agreeing with the humans more than the humans are agreeing with each other, though, then point for the machine. That's roughly the way that we're quantifying this. But there was a little bit of a, honestly, kind of a math error in the first way that this was scored. And it's kind of a subtle one, but it's interesting. So I said that there are four radiologists, and the way that they would score the radiologist's predictions against the other radiologists is they would say for each image or for each patient, I suppose, there's three radiologists that are our panel of experts, let's say. And there's one radiologist who's held out. And then maybe they cycled through. And so they did this four times. I'm not exactly sure. The radiologist who's held out, that person gets a point when they agree with the consensus of the other three. And so if you have, let's say the panel of three says pneumonia, pneumonia, no pneumonia, and then the fourth one says no pneumonia, then that person does not get a point. Does that make sense?
0: Okay, so yeah, the the person who's held out doesn't get a point because they're the holdout.
1: Uh, because they don't agree with the majority of the other three. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and that is that holdout radiologist
0: randomly assigned per image or something.
1: So they do that with all four of the radiologists. So they go through and they have it's kind of like a fourfold cross validation of sorts, if you like. And so each of the four radiologists, they're going to go through and say, okay, what's the panel of the other three, and then does this person mm. get a point according to that panel? So do the math with me here for a second. Imagine that you have a 50-50 split. So there's two people who say pneumonia. There's two people who say no pneumonia. There's a maximum of, if you have total agreement and all four people say pneumonia, or all four people say no pneumonia, then that's four points, right? Because there's going to be four different cases in which you pull out the, the one radiologist and they agree with the other three. You do that four times, right? Four mm-hmm. points. So let's say it's a 50-50 split now. How many points do the radiologists earn if it's a 50-50 split?
0: I think they earn zero. Is that right? Yeah, that's Because right. if you have radiology, so uh, let's say the first two say yes. The other two say no. So if you take the first one and you say, okay, do you agree with the majority? The majority is currently now... One other person who said yes, and two who said no. So your yes radiologist, who's the holdout, gets no points because he disagrees or she disagrees with the majority. You do that with the second one, same math problem. You do that with the third one, it's the same opposite math problem because now the majority believes what the first two believe. So in the case of a 50-50 split, you end up assigning zero points instead of four.
1: Yeah, that's right. But the way that they were scoring the algorithm was they were scoring the algorithm against all of the humans sort of together, so they had a panel of four uh, instead of a panel wow. of three. And the way that they were doing that calculation was basically that then the computer would end up with two points out of the possible four, because it would say that it agreed with two of the people out of the possible four people that it could have agreed with. Right. And so what that meant was there was this bias. When you had a 50-50 split, yeah, that, that the algorithm gets a couple of points, the humans get nothing. So again, just kind of a silly little math error, um, of the scoring system that kind of makes sense when you first think about it, but then has this weird little asymmetry to it. Uh, and this was again, a thing that got fixed in a later version of the paper, but it's just a little bit funny how little things like this can creep in.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of doing, um, algebra problems in grade school, uh, or in middle school when you make a small mistake and then that small mistake carries for all the way forward to the to the end and you end up with the wrong answer and if you have a good math teacher the math teacher will look at your your process and say oh you got everything right aside from this little this little problem unfortunately my algebra teacher was not so uh forgiving
1: (laughs) (laughs) well you seem to have turned out fine
0: I really liked calculus, but I was really bad. I'm, I'm still really bad at algebra, so.
1: Well, speaking of calculus, actually, that's a, not a terrible segue to the last part of this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey you. Uh, So talking about the actual results, and so how yeah. do you, you know, again, trying to unpack this claim of the algorithm is doing better than... So one of the ways that you can quantify the performance of a machine learning algorithm is with something called the ROC curve or the rock yeah, curve
0: a rock curve
1: yep and so that's a curve that uh, scans through all the different decision thresholds that you could make in terms of where you could place the cutoff between the two different classes that you want to uh, that you want to be discriminating between mm-hmm. and it says what's the precision and one minus the recall uh, I think if I'm not mixing this up. Um, So there's kind of these two standard metrics that are always trading off against each other. And you plot one on the X axis, the other on the Y axis, and then you can chart out a curve in that space and the shape of that curve, or in particular, the area under that curve, calculus Um, the area under that curve is one of the ways that you can quantify the quality of the model that you've built. So, I, I have
0: to Katie. I have to compliment you on your segue detection. <laughs> that you. was really fast. That was really good.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, so, or using the rock curve in general, that would be a, a pretty good way of uh, quantifying how good the algorithm is doing. And then the way that you can say whether the algorithm is doing better than the humans is that you could take your humans and you plot them on those same XY um, axes. And so each of your humans is just going to be a single point in that space. And that's the whatever precision and one minus the recall of that person and how they labeled all of the cases. And so you kind of have four different points in the same plot as uh, this curve that you're drawing. We'll attach a, a link to the blog post as, as usual on linear digressions.com. And then when you look at this, it's going to make a lot more sense. I'm not doing a great job of explaining it, but the general gist of it is that there's this curve, there's four dots on the curve, or if you want five dots, where the fifth one is kind of the average of the other four. And if the dots are to the left and above the curve, then the humans are doing better. And if they're below and to the right of the curve, then the humans are doing worse. And in general, they are below and to the right. But here's where it starts to get interesting again. So, da, 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 yeah. <laughs> so the first thing is that one of these points is an outlier. So there's kind of three radiologists who seem to be in a cluster pretty closely together. And then one of them is a little fairly far off from the other three. Doing better or doing worse? you can't really say whether it's better or worse. It's just different. Like this person seems to be diagnosing more cases or detecting more cases of pneumonia, but they also are, have more false positives. So it's just a different, you know, a different bias, I guess, as a diagnoser. And it's a little bit unclear whether that particular person was a more experienced doctor or a less experienced doctor than the other three, or maybe just different in some way, but it sounded like there were, you know, variations from doctor to doctor. So it's hard to know if they're how reliable that data point is. In general, you know, you want to be thinking fairly carefully about your outliers and trying to figure out if you want to include them or not, if they're kind of fair representations of the overall trend. Mm. Now, in this case, the presence of the outlier does change the result pretty significantly about how like what's the overall performance of the group? Because outliers can have a a big impact on like kind of the overall summary metrics that you compute for the group.
0: So if you're if you're not including outliers, do you just do you literally just omit them when you're doing the final processing?
1: I mean, you could, yeah. So it's not uncommon, for example, to have some data cleaning where you just get rid of outliers. But in this case, that's a little bit. Number one, it's not clear if you should do that in. The first place, because maybe that outlier is the most experienced doctor and they're right, the best representation of highly skilled humans.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> I mean, secondly, if you get rid of them, then you're now making uh, decisions on the basis of three data points, and yeah. that's uh, a little, that's pretty shaky. So it's not clear exactly the best way to resolve this, but the point is that on the basis of this, like, maybe kind of arbitrary outlier that's where a lot of the conclusion of of the paper is drawn if you were to remove that person then some of these claims of superhuman performance would be a lot weaker um so it's un- it's sort of important to understand <laughs> you know the error bar on that claim and how how much the strength of that claim is on the basis of probably just one person mm interesting uh, and then the last thing that I wanted to mention is that it, this wasn't all just about detecting pneumonia. This was about detecting pneumonia and potentially one of 13 other conditions that could show up on a chest x-ray. And then there were two different versions of the paper that got published. So there are potentially 28 different things that these researchers could have been finding with their uh, machine learning algorithm. And the thing you have to be careful of when there's lots of different hypotheses that you're testing is that then even if the chance of, for example, finding pneumonia sort of by chance is fairly low, if it's then aggregated with the chance of finding pneumonia or types of cancer or whatever, I don't know very much about lung diseases, there's all these different chances then that you have to like you get to play the game 28 different times and so the chance that you oh. win just by kind of sheer luck goes up to 28 times higher than it was if you were just saying this is the only thing that I'm going to try to do. And so that's something that you have to huh. correct for or oh, at the very nice. least you should say here are all of the here are all of the tests that I did and then you can see if this is, you know, maybe something where you just got lucky instead of there's superhuman performance going on.
0: I see. So basically, you can't, like, to, to use kind of a silly example, you can't build a, a robot which is supposedly really good at lottery games, have them go in and play 28 different types of lottery machines, and then when they happen to win one of them, say, aha, this robot is really good at, at this particular game.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because it played 27 other games, of course it was going to win. If you have that robot go in and play just one of them, then that claim is a little bit less dubious.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's something that you need to be careful of and at the very least, um, make sure that you mention all of the different tests that you did. And this can be this can be really hard to do because sometimes there's things that you might not think of as tests that's not as clear cut as this, but that still kind of are. So for example, if you're doing a lot of hyperparameter tuning and you're trying out all these different combinations of hyperparameters in your model, there might be a thousand different algorithms that you that you fit and then you pick the best one, Like, hmm. there's a good chance that the reason that it's the best one is because it got a little bit lucky, and so you're gonna have an overly inflated idea of its performance. So you have to be pretty careful about this with, um, I mean, in general, but especially with machine learning if you're doing a lot of tuning, but then if you're making strong statistical statements on the quality of the model that you got out as a result, you are probably gonna be biased to think it's a little bit better than it actually is. Or at least if you didn't have a test set for uh, understanding that impact, then right. you know there's a good chance that it happens. So anyway, uh, that is most of the things that got covered in this blog post. I thought it was again a really excellent, very clear and well articulated blog post, and I, it was it's fun to talk about because there's all kinds of interesting little things that can go wrong if you're not thoughtful about them. And again, I'm not sure that most of them actually did go wrong. Some of this was just communication debt that had to be paid down a little bit from the original paper, but thinking about things like signal leakage and enriching your test set in interesting examples and all these kinds of things Mm -hmm. are, you know, very subtle and not the kind of thing that come up, you know, kind of in the course of everyday Textbook examples of machine learning, this is the stuff that you have to think about in real life.
0: It seems as that there are a lot of articles uh that talk about things that could have gone wrong, not necessarily that did and I think that's a really great tool for learning like that's that's fantastic, not just for people who are um in the field who are who are doing it every day, but I mean even people who are interested, just like me like these are just things that i my brain has not been trained to think about these types of failure cases. And um, I can definitely say doing, the, doing this podcast for the last couple of years has really broadened the way that I think about software engineering, even though we don't really talk about software engineering all that much. Oh, cool. Like what? I think one thing would be, um, yeah, you put me on the spot, but but <laughs> one thing is... Thinking really carefully about what questions I'm asking. That's not something that I was in the habit of, of doing so diligently uh, before I started doing this podcast. And it seems like that's that's a really that's an even more important part of doing data science than it is in doing uh, programming. Because if you if you if you don't really know exactly what problem you're solving, and you write something and you find it doesn't really solve your problem then you just write it again or you change it, right? But if you build a model that is solving a different problem, you might not realize when you get an answer that you're actually solving a different problem than the one that you need to be solving or the one that you think that you're solving.
1: Yeah, problem definition in machine learning is 80% of the battle in, in my professional opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I don't know, I'll, I'll have to reflect a little bit more and um, come up with a list. But uh, but yeah, these, these types of papers are always really fun reads.
1: Yep, uh, I totally agree. So, thank you again to Luke Ogden Rader for uh, being a great subject for a second time. Uh, thanks for pointing <laughs> out the follow up episode or the follow up blog post to us. It was a lot of fun to read. And then, of course, we'll have a link to it uh, as usual on LinearDigressions dot com, where you can see some of the some of the pictures that I. Tried and mostly failed at explaining and these kinds of things that make it a lot more clear. So uh, yeah, go check it out.
0: Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are Ben at LinearDigressions.com and Katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.